Being thankful isn't easy. It's not natural. If we want that emotion, we have to work for it. And that's where Psalm 73 comes in. Uh, Psalm 73, if you're there, you see at the very beginning, it, it gives a heading. It says it's a psalm of Asaph. This is not one that's written by David. It's written by one of his right-hand men. And I want Asaph to, to, to tell us his story today. Um, his story about how he, uh, well, he was, first of all, the choir director of David's choir. So, so if you think of um, you know, today, big-time worship leaders, someone like Chris Tomlin or Matt Redman, or depending on your generation, maybe you think Charles Wesley or Isaac Watts, you know, some guy who's this really big-time leader, a, a tremendous Christian celebrity. That's Asaph. And here in Psalm 73, he tells us his story, his story of how one time he wasn't thankful and how that almost ruined his life. The structure's going to be a little different today. You might notice a lot of blank space on your outline. We don't have fill in the blanks this time because I'm not going to give you specific points. I just want to tell Asaph's story. We're going to walk through this chapter verse by verse, um, let him explain what happened for him, and, and hopefully as we journey with him from envy to thankfulness, we'll experience the same emotions as well. So let's start in Psalm 73, verses 1 through 3, where Asaph lays out the problem. It says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Lays out the problem. He gives first this foundational truth in verse 1. This is a great truth. God is good to his people. Uh, one of our old churches, we had this little call and response thing. You might have done it too, where the, the leader would say, God is good. And they respond, all the time. And then you say, all the time, God is good. Okay, that, that's true. God is good all the time. And we need to say that and be reminded of it. Asaph affirms that here. But then he says, there was a time in my life when I almost stopped believing that. There was a time in my life when I almost walked away from God. When Asaph almost walked away from God, the worship leader, the Chris Tomlin of David's generation, he said, I almost walked away from God. I almost stopped believing he was good. Why? What caused him to do that? He says, because I was envious of the prosperity of the wicked. The great mistake that he made that almost shipwrecked his faith was envy. I wonder, do you think that envying the prosperity of the wicked is as dangerous as he says? I mean, really, do you think that reading People magazine and wishing that you had their lives is the sort of thing that could shipwreck your faith? You say, that's not dangerous, that's entertainment. We watch uh, Real Housewives of Atlanta or Keeping Up with the Kardashians or, or any number of those extreme home makeover shows. And, and, and we say, that's, that's not dangerous. That's just entertainment, right? That's just, it's just mindless, harmless fun. But there's a part of us, isn't there, that's awakened by those sort of things? As we start to watch them and, and look at them and, and we just, the monologue begins. Why do they have that? Look at these people. They're not good people. And they've got all this stuff. That house is amazing. Why can't I have a house like that? I deserve a house like that. I'm clearly I'm a better person than them. We get envious. Or, or what about all the envy that we feel towards the one percenters right now, right? You say, that's not bad. That's just patriotic. You know, the, the rich are the bad guys. And, and, and we should be, and they don't deserve the money that they have. We deserve the money they have. 
That's not a bad thing. That's, that's, you know, it's almost patriotic. You know, Asaph says that feeling, that envy of the prosperity of the wicked, I know that feeling. That feeling is the opposite of thankfulness, and that is the feeling that almost destroyed me. He continues in verse 4 and 5, and fleshes it out a little bit more. He says, here's what I'm jealous of. Verse 4, for they, that is the wicked, have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. So here's a picture of their prosperity. This is what life is like for them. Uh, they have no pangs until death. Their life is easy. Uh, they're fat and sleek. We'll come back to that. So they're not, not in trouble as others are. Their life has no trouble, and they are not stricken like the rest of us. We, we all have troubles, but these people, for some reason, they seem to be escaping from all the trouble that everyone else has in their lives. So, so with one little uh, cultural difference, what he's doing here is he's describing the American dream. It's what we all want. Uh, the cultural difference, of course, he says that they're fat and sleek. That's different from our cultural ideal, right? In our culture, the ideal is to be slender. And that's because we live in a culture of prosperity where uh, we have abundance, right? And so to actually be sleek in a culture of abundance means that you're better off. You can afford to buy the expensive foods. You can afford to take time, energy to work out. So to show that you're wealthy, you actually are slender in a culture like ours with abundance. But in this culture, it was a culture of scarcity, Right? Everybody didn't have enough food. And so if you actually were able to have enough food that you could gain a few pounds and people could see that, they'd know, wow, that person is wealthy. And so he's saying, look at these folks. They have the ideal body type. They're wealthy. Their life is good. They have no trouble until they die. They've got it all. It's the American dream. Apparently it was the Israelite dream as well. It wouldn't be that bad, though, if it were happening to decent people. But it isn't. Here's, here's the folks it was happening to, verses 6 through 9. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. Who are these people? These are not good people. These people who are succeeding in life, by all appearances, having the good life, the American dream, they are not good people. He says they're proud. They are violent. Uh, This image in verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness. So it's not like they've just done well and they have a few pounds and you can see that, yeah, they're, they're being well provided for. They're gluttonous. They can't control their appetites. They have enough. They have more than enough. And they just keep eating and eating until their eyes bulge out. And this may just be purely literal or even a picture of greed, just how you're never satisfied. No matter how much they have, it's never enough. They take and they take and they take. Worst of all, in verse 9, he says they're godless. They set their mouths against the heavens. They're, They're speaking against God. Their tongue struts through the earth. They're boastful. Look at me. I've made it. These are the people who are doing well in the world. And in one perspective, this is accurate, isn't it? It seems like when you you look at the world that it's those who have no regard for God or others that end up with the nicest houses, the best cars, the most powerful jobs, the least tragedy. 
Good guys finish last. That's not fair. And as we, we contemplate this unfairness, the, the more we think on this and the more we let that ruminate in our minds, the more we begin to question the goodness of God. Asaph started out with that statement, truly God is good to his people. God is good all the time, all the time God is good. But the more we think about this, what the wicked are getting ahead. They have all these things that I'm not, I, I don't. Their life is better than mine. The more we think on that, the more we question the goodness of God. And that's what happened to Asaph. He continues in, in verse 10 and, and says, here's, here's the things that then happen. Here's the fruit of thinking like this. Verse 10, therefore, his people, it's God's people, turn back to them, to the wicked, and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my hand, heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. It says when you start to, to think like this, when you start to harbor these envious thoughts and, and, and think, well, why do the wicked succeed and, and I don't? Here's the progression you go down. In verse 10, uh, you see you, you give up on right and wrong. This is a tricky verse. It's, it's a hard one to translate. Uh, but it seems like what it's saying is that God's people are looking at the wicked. They're seeing what they're doing. It's, it's wrong, but they're succeeding. And so they're starting to reevaluate. Maybe being wicked isn't so bad after all. Saying so God's people turn back to them. They find no fault in them. They start to think that right is wrong and wrong is right. Life's working for them. They seem to be happy. Who am I to say that what they're doing is wrong? We begin to take our cues from People Magazine or the Wall Street Journal instead of Scripture. Say, here's how you live your life. Be like the celebrities. Be like the 1%. We give up then on believing in God. He continues in verse 11 and 12. They say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? These are the wicked, always at ease, increasing in riches. So one of the tensions we get here is we, if you look at the wicked and you see them prospering, you begin to question the goodness and the power of God. See, is God really good and powerful? Does God really know what's going on? I mean, if God is good, and he knows what's happening, he sees this wickedness, then he should be doing something about it. So either he's not good, he doesn't care, or he's not powerful, and he can't do anything. And we begin to question the goodness and the power of God. And from there, it's just a short step to giving up on God altogether. Giving up on following him. Uh, in verse 13, he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. Meaningless. Meaningless. Why did I do this? It's all in vain. Why did I work so hard? Why have I followed Jesus all these years if the people who don't follow him have so much better lives than I do? They've rejected God and they get the good life. So why should I keep following God? Right? So, so here, here we are. This, this is Asaph. This is his, he said, my foot almost slipped. This is his foot slipping. This is Asaph getting to the crisis of faith and saying, I just don't know anymore if it's even worth it to follow God. Have you been there? Can you identify with Asaph? You ever asked those questions? 
Maybe for you it's a, a sibling or a coworker or a neighbor, somebody you know well. And, uh, and they're just the prodigal, right? You're the good one. <laughs> you keep your head down. You do the work. You, you, you do what you're supposed to do. You're going to church. You're following Jesus. And they're doing whatever they want. They're living life however they want to live. They're just being reckless and living for themselves. And yet somehow it seems like it always turns out better for them. You know, you, you work so hard and they've got a better job than you do. They got a nicer house. They take better vacations because you tithe and they don't and they've got more money than you do. They're, they're healthy and you've got this sickness that is just plaguing you. Uh, even their kids seem better behaved than yours. And they seem happier because they're always just doing what they want. When you experience that in your life in, in real brass tacks and you see this person that's living for themselves and seems like their life is better than yours and you're living for Jesus and all you get is, like he says, stricken and rebuked every morning. Uh, it's hard to be thankful there. It's easier to be filled with envy and to give up. And that's where Asaph was. And in verse 15, he acknowledges how close he was to walking away. Verse um, Verse 15, he says, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So he's saying, these, these are my thoughts, right? Verses 10 through 14, these are my thoughts is what I was thinking. He said, if I would have said this, I would have betrayed the entire generation of your people. Right? Remember who this guy is, right? This is the worship leader of Israel. This is David's choir director. If Asaph gets up there in front of, the, of the, the congregation and he says what he said here, he said, the wicked prosper, God doesn't care, I'm giving up. What ramifications would that have had for, for everyone else? I mean, what if I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not Asaph, I'm just one pastor. What if I just stood up here one Sunday and was like, you know what, I'm done. I'm done. I'm, I'm done with this Jesus stuff. It's hard. You know, I think, I just want to, I want, to have, I want to be wealthy. I, I, want, I want the big house, and I'm not getting it, so I'm, I'm done. See you later. Right? That, that would be devastating um, in, in some degree uh, to your faith. I'm not saying I'm, I would destroy you, but I'm saying it wouldn't be good, right? It wouldn't be good. And if Asaph had done it, he's saying, whoa, I got so close. I almost blew it for the whole country. But, but that's the edge. That, that, that's the edge. He's, he's, he's almost slipping, but he doesn't slip. He doesn't slip. He comes back from the edge. So what is it? What is it in the rest of the psalm that brings him back from the edge? What gets him through his crisis of faith? How does he go from envy to thankfulness? Right? And that's what we need today, right? Because just because there's a day on our calendar marked Thanksgiving does not mean that we automatically give thanks. We need help. How do we get there? Um, so if, if you've been, you know, it's, it's really been bugging you so far, you haven't any blanks to fill in. Um, if you want to start taking notes, you can take notes here. I'll give you a little structure. One big thing, five little things okay, that help him. Uh, the one big thing that helps him to be thankful is that he remembers the truth about God. That's the main point. He remembers his, the truth about God. Verse 16 and 17 are the hinge. He says, but when I thought about how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God then I discerned their end. 
says, I was just pondering this. I couldn't wrap my head around it. I was just overwhelmed. And then I went to the sanctuary. I went to worship with God's people. And he says, that's when I remembered the truth about God. This is a, this is a key principle. We talked about this some in the sermon on fear back in Psalm 27. It's the principle that we, we need to talk to ourselves instead of listen to ourselves. We, 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 we have so many struggles because we're listening to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves or letting others talk to us. What this means is, you know, we, we listen to ourselves. We, we have these thoughts that pop into our heads. So in this particular case, it's these thoughts of envy, these thoughts of... As we, uh, as we look at, at other people, uh, we see their lives better than ours, and we begin to have these thoughts that just, they come into our heads. They, they pop in, and we listen to them. We listen. We say, yeah, that is right. Why do they have better stuff than me? Why is their life easier than me? I know them. I'm such a better person than them, in all humility. I'm in such a better person than them, and, and I, I deserve better than they do. And we, we listen to ourselves. We let those thoughts take root and, and to ruminate. And this is what has happened with Asaph in the first half of the psalm. He, he hasn't been talking to God at all. He hasn't been reminding himself of truth at all. He's been talking to himself, or he's been listening to himself. He's been saying, that's not fair. It's not fair. But in verse 16, we get a turning point where he's no longer listening to himself. He begins talking to himself. Not just hearing those thoughts that come in and being envious, but talking and saying, no, I'm going to flip the narrative. It really isn't like that. And notice where it happens. It happens when he goes to worship with God's people. That's that's a crucial thing, I think. Because it's really hard to just stop listening to yourself. It's really hard when you're by yourself to flip the narrative in your own mind and say, no, no, it's not that way. When, when the envy gets a hold and, and it's, it, this is just the way that you're talking, you're, the way that you're hearing yourself over and over and over again, it's hard for you to just grab yourself by the lapels and say, snap out of it, that's not the truth. And what happens to Asaph is he goes to worship. He goes to the temple where there's other people there, other people speaking the truth into his life, and that's where he finally remembers, no, life is okay. God is good to his people. That's one of the things that we try to do here every week, is be a place where we can stop listening to ourselves and start talking to ourselves or let others talk to us the truth that we need. You know, to, to be a place where the truth is proclaimed so that wherever you are this week, as you came into church today, and, and whether it was an envious thing or a fearful thing or something else going on in your life, instead of just sitting there and listening to the same old tape play in your mind over and over, you get someone else speaking the word of God to you. Hopefully multiple people, those children this morning singing, speaking the word of God to you. And saying, it's not the way that you think. God is good to his people. So if you're here today and you are far from thankful, let me remind you, let me be that servant to you this morning, reminding you of the truth of God. So here are these five things from the rest of the psalm. What do we remember? What's this truth about God we need to know? The first, Asaph says, is that God will judge the wicked. This is verses 18 through 22. He says, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. 
When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He said, I was so so envious, I couldn't even see this obvious truth that although the wicked seem to prosper now, they will prosper for a short time and they will be judged. We can get so worked up because there's people out there who deny God that seem to have such good lives, so much better lives than ours. And, you know, just first of all, as an aside, probably their life isn't half as good as you think it is. Right? We're, we're jealous of an illusion. That's why there's those e-cards that say, I hope someday your life is as good as it looks on Facebook. Because right? it's easy for your life to look good on Facebook. It's easy for your life to look good even from the driveway. People, you look at them, you say, they don't have any troubles. What could possibly, what could they be going through? Look at all the stuff they have. Look how happy their kids look when they come over. We think that their lives are so great. You have no idea. You have no idea. So most of the time, we're envious of an illusion. But beyond that, and more importantly, Asaph reminds us that the wicked will eventually get justice. Even if they do have the perfect life, even if things do seem to be going well for them, if they're denying God, they will be judged. Someone can make it through life with no pain, with tons of money, with a perfect body, but they will still die. And they'll still face judgment. God does not let anyone get away with evil. He doesn't let anyone persist in denying him. All that matters at the end of the day is if you know him. You have to remember that. You need to remember, too, that God is continually with you. Verse 23, Asaph says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you, God. You hold my right hand. I'm continually with you. That's a promise. That's a great promise. I'm going to clarify, of course, this this is not for every single person. This is for believers, those who put their faith in Jesus. So if you're a Christian, you put your faith in Jesus, then this promise is for you that God is continuing with you. He holds your hand. What a great picture. I just can't help but think of walking in a crowd with one of my daughters, you know, when when they're little and you're in the crowd. and What do they do? They reach up. They hold your hand and you hold... You hold your kid's hand. And when I'm holding her hand, she feels safe. She feels secure because she knows I've got her. No one can take her. That scary crowd, not scary anymore. I got dad. I'm holding her hand. And that's what it's like to be a Christian, right? God is holding our hand. He's continuing with us. He's holding our hand. He's wearing his right hand. Nobody can steal us away from us. Nothing can get to us. He will never leave us. Even in the hard times, he has not abandoned us. He's got us right there. Tremendous promise. To paraphrase a a pastor that I heard this week preaching on a different uh, passage, he said, if this is true, many of us need to be a lot more optimistic about our lives. That's true. If God's really holding your hand, many of us need to be a lot more optimistic about our lives. We need to believe that that God's got us, that he's working all things for our good, that things are going to be okay. In fact, that things are okay because he's got us. He's a good father. He loves us. He will never let us go. Okay, remember that. Remember that and be thankful. Verse 24, remember too that God guides you by his counsel. Another tremendous gift. 
So he holds us by the hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you receive me to glory. That's just that first phrase. You guide me with your counsel. Counsel's a good thing. Uh, I remember when I was in college, uh, I wasn't married yet. Jen came out to visit, and one of my mentors there, a wise Christian guy, uh, you know, saw us hanging out, and he took me aside later. He said, when are you going to marry that girl? That was good counsel. That was wise counsel. It set the direction for my life in a healthy and good direction. Okay, counsel is good. Wise counsel is good. And God offers us wise counsel. And he's speaking primarily of the Bible. Right? The Bible gives us direction. It gives us counsel, even like this very psalm. The world tells us, you know, here's the direction you're supposed to go. Uh, the good life is the life with a lot of possessions. The good life is the life of, of fame and of uh, health and prosperity. And that leads us down the wrong path. And Asaph is saying here, don't listen to the world, listen to God, listen to his counsel. One of the great gifts is he gives us his counsel. You don't have to get to where I was on the edge of the cliff where I'm almost slipping. Just stay away from it. The Bible gives us what we need to lead us to paths of righteousness, to green pastures, still waters. God guides us with his counsel. So remember that, that's a gift. You're not alone. You don't have to figure this out on your own. You've got God leading you. Remember to the second half of verse 24 that God gives you eternal life. He says, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. So much of our trouble comes when we forget that, that this life is not all there is. We start to look at these folks who have amazing lives. We get envious of their lives, forgetting that even a person who has an amazing life for 90 years only has 90 years. And after that comes eternity. And and eternity is so much more important in this life for the simple fact that it's so much bigger. It's so much bigger. Now the good news of the gospel is since Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, everyone who trusts in him has this hope that when we die, when our life is over, whether it's 50 years or 90 years or 12 years or 100 years, When this life is over, we go immediately to be with Jesus, which is awesome, the Bible says. But then, too, our hope is that when Jesus returns to earth eventually and he uh, raises believers from the dead, he'll create a new heaven and a new earth where we'll live forever in perfect bodies, the world the way it's supposed to be. And, And really, when you understand that, it just comes down to math. Would you rather have 90 years of the American dream or an eternity of glory and joy. Remember that. Remember eternity when you're tempted to be envious of the prosperity of the wicked. There's nothing better than forever with Jesus. Finally, the fifth thing Asaph says is that uh, God satisfies your deepest longing. God satisfies your deepest longing. Verses 25 and 26, he just says, who, who am I in, who ha, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That's the final antidote right there. It's the final antidote to envying the prosperity of the wicked. They may have everything this world has to offer, but they don't have God. And because they don't have God, they have nothing. You may have nothing but God, and if you have God, you have everything. 
Just listen to this language in, in verse 25. He, he sounds like someone in love, doesn't he? Who am I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. Asaph's totally in love with God here. It's an all-consuming passion. He says, I found what I'm looking for, and you are it. If you asked Asaph, what do you want for Christmas? He would say, I want God. If you look on his Amazon wish list, it's just God, God, God. That's all he wants. He just wants God. Nothing I desire besides you. I'm totally satisfied with you, Lord. This reminds me of one of my favorite parables. It's one verse long. Matthew 13, 44. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Got the story? Guy walking along in a field, not his field. Kicks a rock, moves it, finds, hey, there's a treasure in this field, really big treasure. So he covers it up. Anybody see that? No? Okay. Runs off. He doesn't have enough money to buy the field. So what does he do? He sells everything he has so he can buy that field. Because the treasure is worth more than anything he has. Okay, now in this story, is that guy bitter because he gave up everything to get the treasure? No, he does it with joy because he knows in selling his possessions, he gets something worth far more than anything he had. And that's what it's like to become a Christian. When you become a Christian, Jesus does ask you to give up everything. He asks you to give your whole life to him, to come after him, to follow him, take up your cross, die to yourself. And you do give up everything. You give up your right to, to do what you want. You're not in charge anymore. He is. And you probably also give up the opportunity you may have had to be prosperous and successful, at least as much as those who don't follow God. But in return, you get something of infinite value. You get a relationship with God himself, and to have God is to have everything. Because everything else will fail. He's the only one that doesn't fail. Verse 26, he says, my flesh, my heart may fail. I mean, no, no may about it. They will fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Nice houses will fail. Toys will break. Friendships will end. Our bodies will die. But God is your strength and your portion forever. He's your treasure. Hidden in a field, he will never fail. So now Asaph, by this time, having worked from envy to a place of being incredibly thankful, he says, here's, here's the conclusion of things. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. This is verse 27. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Okay, he, just, he just ends by drawing a line in the sand. Saying there's two kinds of people in this world. There's those who have a relationship with God and there's those who don't. Those who don't will lose in the end. So you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But those who do can be thankful no matter what. So the key question as we end the psalm is just which group are you in? Which group are you in? Have you said with Asaph, as for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. Have you done that? Have you given your life to Jesus? Has he become the one of whom you can say, 
There's nothing on earth I desire apart from you. If you haven't, okay, if you haven't, don't wait. Do it, to, do it today. Do it, do it now. So talk to me after the service. Send me a text. Call me. Email me. Smoke signal. Whatever. Let's get this worked out. Because you, you need to get this hammered out. This is the most important thing. If you have God, you have everything. If you have everything but God, you have nothing. So if you're in a right relationship with God, though, if, if you have done that, if you're with Asaph and you're saying, it is good to be near God, he is my refuge, be thankful. That's the whole secret. It's the whole secret. How can you be thankful next Thursday? How can you be thankful today? It's you know that God is with you. Remember the truth about God. He will judge the wicked. He is continually with you. He guides you with his counsel. He gives you eternal life, and he satisfies your deepest longings. He's your refuge, and it is good to be near him. Asaph said in verse 15, he almost made a mistake. When he, he almost opened his out, mouth. If he'd opened his mouth and said these things, he would have destroyed everyone. But now at the end of the psalm, he's excited to talk. He says, I, I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. It ends with Asaph proclaiming the goodness of God and giving thanks. And so I want to end our sermon uh, and this series in the Psalms together, the way we've ended all of them, by reading a portion of the Psalm together and giving thanks to God with these words. So if you do have your note-taking outline, we're not going to read the whole thing. We're going to do verses uh, 1 through 3. And then the last few verses, well, just read it's on the sheet. I titled it wrong. <laughs> but it's verses 1 through 3 and verses 23 through 28. So read with me. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Amen.